Welcome to the second episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The mission of the Avalanche Hour podcast is to create a stronger community through sharing stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. I sure do hope you have been getting out skiing and riding because it seems like no matter where you are, in the western United States and Canada, it is firing right now. Life getting you down? My advice is to get a prescription for powder. It usually works for me. I've received some feedback about the length of the last episode being a bit too long. Well, I haven't really shaved much off of this episode, but if you find your mind wandering while listening, I'd encourage you to hit the pause button and come back to it at a later time. I will work to trim some of the fat off of the next few episodes to keep you all engaged. In this episode, we will hear a story about a close call from Roger Strong. We talked to Drew Hardesty about some issues with the ever-increasing numbers of people recreating in backcountry avalanche terrain. And on tap today on the rotating dispatch is a recap of what the snowpack is looking like up north in Montana as we get learned up from the fine folks at the Gallatin National Forest Avalanche Center. I met Roger Strong while I was doing some part-time work for Black Diamond in Salt Lake City, Utah, where he was a sales rep at the time. It was great to catch up on the phone and have him share a story about a close call he had on April 6th of 2011 off of Snoqualmie Pass in Washington. Roger is a hard guy to keep up with. He is an accomplished rock and ice climber, ski mountaineer, kiteboarder, as well as an Arc'teryx athlete. Not to mention he had a 20-year career as the captain of a crab fishing vessel in the Bering Sea to allow him to pursue his climbing and skiing ambitions. And this was before the deadliest catch was even trending hard. Roger lives in Seattle, Washington with his wife and daughter where he works as a sales rep in the outdoor industry. Here is Roger's story. My background, just real quick, um... Roger Strong. I grew up in Denver, Colorado and moved to the Pacific Northwest in uh, 1990 uh, as kind of a halfway point between Colorado and my former job of crab fishing. So that's where a lot of the fleet's based out of. And I was a little melancholy. I knew that Washington gets a ton of snow and lots of glaciers, but I always heard about like this term cascade concrete. So I wasn't all that psyched about leaving ski country USA uh, but then I started to get to know people that climb here a lot and ski here a lot and just fell in love with the Cascades and and their mantra has had always been about you know well, Cascade concrete you could ski bigger lines and you don't have quite the threat of avalanches that you do in a continental snowpack so that was always like like that that mainstay that stability that of trust in the mountains so um yeah, I've been lucky enough to be uh, turned on to skiing when I was two years old. So my parents got both my brother and I into the mountains backpacking and hiking and skiing at a really early age. I didn't wasn't able to really pursue technical climbing until my later teens, so I was able to afford the gear. And that was one of my motivations to pursue crab fishing, uh, to make enough money to buy gear. Um my dad fortunately got me into backcountry skiing early. I think right was when I was 11 or 12 and uh, skins and cross country skis. So we'd access uh, 
moving out into the side country. What was it called? Side country at the time. So we would do laps uh, up at Loveland Pass and Cameron Pass, Kenosha Pass. A lot of the passes that we would drive by, we'd get into the back country. And this was interesting because it was before Beacons. And uh, when I took my first level one avalanche course with the Colorado Mountain School, I believe I was 19. And I think I was, that was in 1986. I learned that, man, that I was probably pretty lucky that my dad didn't get us killed. <laughs> uh, so uh, then, uh, yeah, I learned a lot that year. And then, of course, passionately fell in love with um, hiking and climbing for my turns. And it's just been uh, a love ever since. I feel like as I get older, I get even more and more stoked for winter. Um, and so, um, so fast forward a little bit, um, yeah. You know, winter time is just still my favorite time of year between ice mix and alpine climbing and ski mountaineering and, mm. uh, and of course, doing resorts, at uh, doing laps at the resort. Kind of used to be on the back burner, but now that we have uh, our daughter, and that's obviously is probably the best place to learn ski skills, we spend each weekend at Crystal Mountain Resort uh, mm-hmm. doing laps at the resort and trading off with kiddos. So, um and uh, that was just definitely the the thing we did. Uh, but pre kiddo was all about the backcountry, you know, you know, a good sixty to seventy days in the backcountry season. Uh, now it's kind of the other way around. I still get out, I don't know, probably seventy-five to ninety days of skiing a year, but a good half of that, if not more, is at the resort, doing the side country. I get up at um, you know three thirty a.m one to two to three days a week here because I have a full-time job. It's an hour drive to Snoqualmie Pass. And I try to get to the trailhead by 5 a.m. and knock out a few thousand feet before, uh, you know, having to be back at the office for work, uh, which is obviously, you know, Dawn Patrol, like many of us uh, that have spent time in the Wasatch live for as well so that's what we do but we have to drive a bit further here in washington um then uh, getting towards the end of our seasons usually march and april can be our biggest months for snow you know the days are getting longer but also on that side too is things warm up a little bit quicker the sun's a little higher and it's easy uh, at least for me to get complacent on like you know that things change you know our, our our temperatures do get warmer and things are starting to get even though We'll get more melt-freeze cycles. We can still get, you know, 10 to 12 to 18-inch dumps, you know, once a week. And that uh, and, and stuff can get sliding a little sooner. Um, so my, uh, uh, you know, my typical MO with, you know, a pretty close group of friends. There's about eight, nine close friends that know that, you know, they can – you know, pretty much rely on when the when the skiing is good that Dawn Patrol exists. We'll meet at the Mercer Island Park and Ride around 4, 4.30, sometimes as late as 5, and uh, get a Dawn Patrol knocked out and back to the office by 9.30, 10. Unless it's really good, we don't have appointments, we'll do another lap, and they won't see us at the office till 11, 11.30 or so. Um, and getting to be that part of the season too, I was working, you know, I've been a sales rep in the outdoor industry for uh, going on 13 years now. And the company I was working at the time, you know, manufactured and sold boots and bindings and skis and all the 
accessories that go along with being in the backcountry. And, um, and it was getting to be the uh, kind of the end of the season and uh, getting close to having to travel the territory for clinics. And saw the forecast um, for kind of what was going to be my last Dawn Patrol before I went on a couple-week clinic tour for the state of Oregon. And knowing that it was going to be probably the last powder day of the season, I saw it was about four to six inches in the forecast. I woke up at 3.30 in the morning. I saw it. I was like, oh, wow, 13 inches overnight. Well, that meant that we're probably not going to be skiing anything steep, but at least we can go uh, hit some of the old growth trees that are like 25 degrees or less and just maybe stick our nose out and just see what we find, anything higher up on where I go consistently, which is Mount Snoqualmie. And it has an aspect on its west face that's called the Phantom Slide, and it is parallel to the Alpental ski area of Mount Denny. So Mount Snoqualmie is the highest peak at the pass, and it also garners like three of like the biggest, steepest couars at the pass too that are pretty easily accessible with just 3,000 feet of climbing and approach. Uh, but then that 25 degree old growth that you get about 2,000 feet of old growth in turns into 36 to 38 degrees of 1,000 feet of open glades. So you get lots of different variable terrain that can switch within a few meters. And I get curious of those aspects and how I can like navigate them safely and or just turn around and, and if it feels funky and the snow's telling us to not even continue any, any further than just stick to the uh, the lower angled old, old growth terrain. And so that morning um, I'd planned to um, meet four friends that we've all skied together before, but we had never skied together as a group. And the day before I had actually driven 12 hours from Bozeman, Montana, because I had to pick up the company van from one of my fellow sales reps that um, had it for the season. And I was going to have it for this clinic tour. We were going to be doing a, an industry dealer camp with 14 of our retail dealers. So I kind of had a lot going on in my mind, just, you know, thinking that, wow, this is going to be my last powder day with the boys. Um, you know, yeah, it was almost, you know, two and a half times the amount of snow in the forecast, but everything leading up to that, you know, it's been stable up to that point. But if you think about it, you know, that's it's kind of on an older bed service. So the bonding probably isn't going to be all that great. So, again, it was another sign like, you know, keep it conservative. But I had been driving all the day before. when I didn't get to sleep till about midnight. So I probably only had about three hours of sleep. And I think also another factor that I probably had many years and literally about 250, if not 275 descents of that very line, I just, I kind of gave into that statistic of that similar to getting uh, into car accidents within, you know, five miles of your house and your home. And so I ignored a lot of the signs as I was breaking trail throughout that morning. And um, usually, on you know a nominal ski day or you know snow day with like four to six inches, I can usually uh, break trail in about an hour and a half to an hour forty minutes, you know up to the top of any one of those QRs. What was before? I mean, it took us two hours just to get 
to uh, get out of that old growth. So that should have been another sign. So, um, uh, yeah, we'd been breaking trail for a bit. And even once we got into that, that steeper terrain, that upper thousand feet of open glades, uh, we we're starting to see some cracking and all on every switchback and even talking about it. And that should have been another sign to pull the plug and ski down. But we had just like, you know, a hundred meters of just getting to what was the entrance of the slot Kuar, which is in like one of my top five favorite runs in Washington, actually. And, uh, but we kept telling ourselves that ah, we're not going to ski that line. Let's just, let's just ski the phantom slide. Let's just see, um, you know, what it looks like. And, um, knowing that, you know, the Abbey danger was dangerous and that it was high and we were already getting, you know, we'd already been about 150 meters into cracking a little bit of woomping. Um, we were spread out going, you know, basically we're in two groups of, you know, a group of two and a group of three going from each kind of safety zone to safety zone, a clump of trees here to a, a clump of trees there. Um, and I'm kind of pointing out to other spots to the group where I have seen snow move in the past in similar conditions to where to avoid. Um, I was getting ready for basically my last switchback, knowing I was going to get to the entrance of the slot Kuar, um, where Doug and Dan, who were the last two guys in the party, that's were you know just holding back, waiting for us to for Marcus and Dan and I to cross safely. All of a sudden, everything gets moving. I had kicked off a pocket slab that ran quite a ways and was a little deeper, and all three of us got caught in it and got strewn through uh, a bunch of trees for about 500 feet. And Dan got fortunately pinned right against a tree, ended up breaking his femur, and I got strewn through that same set of trees that had about a meter gap and got flushed head first on uh, big, heavy skis, telemark skis that don't release. And uh, finally, when they did release, um, I went for another couple hundred feet, just getting pounded through, you know, thankfully, small trees. And when everything came to a stop, I was sitting on top of the snowpack, uh, pointing downhill. Fortunately, I wasn't buried. Uh, immediately, I didn't feel any pain, but it was a good, you know, probably 14 or 15 seconds of just mayhem, thinking that I'm dead. Like, I totally screwed up. <laughs> my wife's going to be pissed. I'm never going to see my daughter and wife again. Uh, but then everything stopped. And from then on, I just, like, the first thing that came out of my mouth is I was just yelling, where is everybody at? I asked, like, three times where everybody was at. By the third time, I could hear voices up above, and it was Drew and Doug saying that we have Dan, we're with Dan, and that Dan's okay. And then I'm like, well, where's Marcus? And we couldn't find Marcus. And that was for about a minute. And it turns out Marcus was another 150 feet below me. He was in the midst of trying to cough up a golf ball-sized chunk of snow and ice because he, uh, actually all three of us had, were able to get Avalungs in our mouth at the time. That was kind of the, the leading technology of, of uh, um, in avalanche, if you get caught in an avalanche and buried, safety is, uh, as we all know, an Avalung 
if you do get buried and it's in your mouth, it, it will breathe air from the snowpack to keep you alive, hopefully till uh, your partners can dig you out. But Marcus's abalone had got pulled from his mouth, and during the couple hundred feet that he was getting uh, tossed in the avalanche, he was breathing, and he breathed in that snow, and he was choking on it. So he was hearing us call for him, but he's standing up trying to cough this thing out, and finally he did, and he was able to able to reply. So it seemed like within two minutes he was up where I was assessing because I tried to stand up, I actually quickly turned my beacon into search mode once uh, Marcus wasn't responding to my my uh, my yells. And but I went to stand up, but I couldn't stand up, so I fell down. And I'm like, okay, let's just kind of assess what's going on. Um, I already know Doug and Dan and Drew are a couple hundred feet, you know, about 67 meters above me. They've got Dan. They feel he's got a broken leg. They're working on getting him stabilized. Uh, and then when I went to stand up again is when the pain started shooting through my legs, primarily my knees. And I'm like, wow, something's wrong. So then a little bit of fear starts kicking in and Marcus makes his way up to me pretty fast. He's got, um, his skis uh, on his arm, or actually he doesn't have his skis, I'm sorry, he boot packs up to me and starts assessing my legs. Uh, we start you know, making sure there's no compound, that I'm not bleeding and that the clock's not ticking. And, um, and then, uh, then not a lot, I don't remember a lot after that, other than it, it's just a lot of waiting for search and rescue. To get there, Drew went ahead and dialed 911. We did have a cell signal because, fortunately, it was on the west-facing side uh, that you can see the resort of Alpental, and so we did have a cell signal. But um, it was just the end of the storm. You know, there it was kind of snowing off and on, and uh, there was, you know, they thought they asked if they wanted to send uh, a helicopter, but helicopter wouldn't have done any good because they wouldn't have been able to land. Uh, and it's actually too steep to try to do a hard wire. Uh, so it was gonna, the next method was going to be uh, two litters getting uh, both Dan and I down. So Dan ended up breaking a femur. And fortunately, his femur was broken and only just moved uh, like two centimeters over. And between Marcus and Drew and Doug, they got between four ski poles and a bunch of ski straps. And cutting up two climbing harnesses, they were able to... Um, totally stabilized his leg and he was uh walking running and rock climbing again in six weeks <laughs> so and then my uh um my damage was um seven out of eight ligaments in my knees so acls uh pcls lcls and mcls were were all just completely destroyed in in one whack so i had to succumbed to a wheelchair for three and a half months that whole summer and uh, three surgeries to put everything back together um, and a lot of amazing um, <laughs> uh, community and of course my wife Meredy um, being amazingly supportive and uh, and a couple years of recovery and um, it's been it'll be six years coming up August I'm sorry April 6th and uh Man, this year has been not only a great ski season, but um, I feel my fitness. I feel like I'm like it's it's not only back, but I feel like I'm skiing like I'm in my 20s again, which is 
really cool and I feel blessed. <laughs> every day's every day's a bonus for sure. I asked Roger how being involved in this avalanche accident has changed his backcountry skiing habits. Like in the backcountry I really feel um like I'm making better decisions and that's just always my goal and I always invite even my old partners that we've been skiing and climbing together for a long time or new partners to just to talk a lot and to ask questions and to call me out if they think I'm doing something goofy or odd or stupid I don't even hesitate to to say something because it's such I just you know I feel man this life is it's too short to hold on to your ego and and uh um no I I feel like I'm making better decisions I, I bail a lot more now than I used to for sure and uh uh it's a good feeling for sure Roger told me he mulls over what he could have done differently that day if he could do it all over here are some of his thoughts I would have stuck to the plan you know we we did kind of have sort of a plan which was to like let's just go to the shoulder so you know you've got if you, you know, if you divide up the 3,000 feet of that west face, the first two, the first 2,000 feet are are old growth. And gosh, man, there's the occasional roller in there, but um, when you stick to the line, you're, you're it's it's a good place to go when the abbey danger is high. So that was number one. I should have stuck to just staying in the old growth. Number two would have been when we got the first, you know, when Marcus and I were talking to each other saying, oh, it's kind of cracky cracky. That was sign number two, you know, and I, I, I should have been, I should have read his words. And then, um, and then the third was Drew Tapke, man. Drew's one of the world's top free riders on the planet right now. He was the youngest one in our group. He was reeling it in. He was the anchor. He was just sitting back and, and totally, um, totally holding it in, you know. And he had he was trusting his gut. So I think, and then just that group dynamics of kind of what I talked about earlier was like, gosh, you know, like I guess I'm the one who's done this route hundreds of times, and I feel you know, those guys gave in to my experience, you know, and, and that wasn't, and that, that wasn't okay. I'm the one who kind of let him into it. And, uh, I, I, my number one thing, I should have just stuck to turning around at the shoulder and just doing two laps in the old growth. Once we had that trail punched out, that took two hours to get there. That, that on a safe day should have only taken 45 minutes. Drew Hardesty has been an avalanche forecaster for the Utah Avalanche Center since 1999. After receiving a degree in political science from the University of Colorado in Boulder, he took a commission with the U.S. Navy as an intelligence officer during the first desert storm. Subsequent to working abroad, he spent a number of years working and guiding for Knowles and Outward Bound in Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, and Alaska. Drew now spends his summers as a climbing ranger in Grand Teton National Park and went to Washington, D.C. in 2012 to receive a Valor Award for his part in a dramatic rescue of 17 lightning strike victims near the summit of the Grand Teton. 
Drew, I'd like you to just introduce yourself and give us a little bit of background and, and your role as a forecaster and as well as other things that you've, you've done in your life. Caleb, I feel like that I've been involved in various facets of public safety the last uh, 20 years. I've been a forecaster here at the Utah Avalanche Center since uh, the 99-2000 winter and have worked nearly as long up in the Tetons, Grand Teton National Park as a, a Jenny Lake climbing ranger. And so generally in the mountains, uh, 12 months a year, um, working for promoting public safety and and uh, at least in the summer anyway, uh, uh, getting into the mountains when things haven't gone so well for, for people. So a little bit of PSAR, what we call preventive search and rescue on the forecasting side, and then and then uh, picking up things uh, when things don't go so well um, up in the Teton Range. Right. Yeah, there's there's probably a myriad of, of accidents that you've been a part of up there. Yes, totally. Uh, many of which have been avalanche related uh, in the spring, you know, as the Teton range, in my view, is is uh, encountering a bit of a renaissance, Caleb, with with uh, ski mountaineering, we call it. And and uh, I think that the Tetons, the Teton range in particular, is was made and built for for skiing, maybe more so than climbing. I mean, you know, in climbing, they in the, went through a couple of different phases in the in the 60s and then again in the 80s and early 90s for climbing. But I think it's really come on with with skiing and ski mountaineering um, up in the range there. Yeah, it's certainly a, a booming trend, uh, both backcountry skiing in the winter and spring and early summer. Um, so, so you have quite a bit of experience with areas that see uh, large numbers of users, I would imagine, both in the park and in the central Wasatch. Well, I'm just I'm really impressed with the skills uh, and and uh, drive and initiative and desire of of the many people heading into the backcountry and in the mountains of both Wasatch and the Teton ranges. They're very similar ranges and. Caleb, I think in many respects that they, um, all things considered, are, are fairly small ranges. I mean, each range would probably get lost in the interior ranges of Canada. But uh, on the flip side, you can develop an intimacy and get to know the nooks and crannies and and character of uh, the respective ranges. And they, they're very similar. They complement each other uh, quite well. And uh, the the, the Teton and Wasatch ranges have, have had a kinship for a long time. Many people have worked in both ranges and, and called each range uh, home. Right. Well, we're going we're gonna to dive into some tricky questions here, and, and by no means are we trying to solve any problems or create any issues. Um, but I think our, our topic for today is an important one as the backcountry is seeing increasing number of users um, and especially in an area such as the Wasatch um, which is so close to a, a great population um, 
you know, there's added pressure in the backcountry. Um, and this fall in October at the International Snow Science Workshop in Breckenridge, uh, you hosted a panel discussion on the public's role in avalanche safety. So I think it's a really important topic for our community. And could you just give a brief rundown on on what went on in that panel discussion, just some, some topics that were brought up, and then maybe we'll get into some of those a little bit deeper. Yeah, Caleb, you hit on quite a few important points here. As I mean, the growth has been more than exponential. It's been dramatic uh, with more and more people just figuring out the whole backcountry scene uh, and, and the joys of the powder, the the uh, 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 the exercise, the aesthetics. I mean, it's 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 all there. You know, heading in the backcountry, and you know, we don't have any numbers per se, but we just can can uh, just look at sales of backcountry equipment, whether it's snowmobiles, snowshoes, and so on and so forth. It's just it's skyrocketing. It's it's breathtaking. The numbers, the sheer numbers of people head, heading in the backcountry, and and with that. You know, the, the panel asked the question, uh, as a moderator of the panel, the, the panel uh, was, what's the role of the public in public safety? And uh, invited to be on the panel were uh, guides and forecasters, uh, a, a few um, high-end ambassadors and athletes. Uh, a couple journalists as well. I, I wanted a good cross-section in Caleb of, of people that weren't all part of the public safety world, but some of the people that were um, users uh, as well, just uh, individuals, you know, athletes and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, I want So I wanted to bring about uh, a lot of different uh, viewpoints and, and so forth. And at the end of the day, I think um, that... The, the the significant takeaway with the role of the public in public safety is that it's it's a shared partnership and it's a great deal of ownership of public safety that the public needs to assume when they're heading out of bounds or into the backcountry. Um, this idea that you know certainly the public safety professionals. Uh, we'll just take the Department of Transportation Avalanche teams right now. I mean, they have these high-end professionals that have been working in these positions, um, you know, for decades. Uh, they need the help of the public to make informed, uh, aware decisions um, to help keep avalanches off of the roads. And this is not unique to the Wasatch Range. Um, there are many avalanche paths. There's a lot of terrain across the West, you know, the Wasatch, many areas in Colorado, Teton Pass up in Wyoming, mm -hmm. Galena, in Idaho, over in Washington State, where there have been incidents of, of skiers triggering avalanches across the open roads. And it's high time that we have the sea change in awareness for the public to know that they also assume responsibility for making these good decisions for all. Right. Well, you bring up some really good points there, and and I, I like the idea of shared responsibility. I mean, you have these DOT workers that are working really hard to tr do their best to forecast for 
oftentimes tricky avalanche problems. Um, and so uh, the idea of public aiding in the safety of other public is, I think, a kind of a, something that a lot of users don't usually think about. They're out to, I think, by and large, they're out to have a good time in the backcountry. Um, and, and oftentimes, I, I think myself included, I get a little bit of tunnel vision into my own little world. And I think we all need to step back and, and look at the effects of our actions on other people and infrastructure. Well, you know, there have been some that disagreed with this idea, Caleb, you know, the, this idea of, you know, it's our public land, you know, the freedom of the hills. Um, we don't want any more uh, regulation. We don't want any more uh, restrictions or rules. I mean, that's in, in their view, um, you know, that's what going into the mountains, in the back country is all about is that you, you, you are, are f free from restrictions and free. I mean, uh, and I think that's why many of us got into it in the first place. You know, if with many with many of these presentations and and uh, public speaking gigs, I, you know, I, I ask people like, okay, how many of you have the book Freedom of the Hills? You know, mountaineering Freedom of the Hills on your bookshelf, and you know, without question, most of the hands go up. I mean, that's there's so much to it. But my, the argument for me, Caleb, is that by um, uh, assuming responsibility, you know, for not just yourself, but the others and being a part of that fabric of the, of the greater backcountry community, that in fact, we are even more free, this idea, Caleb, that we are, we're free from harm through this. And that's, that's a key sea change in, in, in a change of perspective where people can see this freedom of the mountains as uh, a privilege uh, with its attendant obligations and responsibilities rather than just um, an, an anarchy uh, in the backcountry, which I fear it may continue to become. So you're saying uh, maybe we need to cultivate a little bit of a shift in our, our perspective when we go out into the backcountry. Is that, is that what you're saying? <laughs> As, I, as a community. I, yeah, yeah, a hundred times over, Caleb. I mean, it's, it, it's, I mean, it's, it's not something that is just, uh, once again, unique to the, to the winter backcountry environment. I mean, this is our own little niche here, but like every, every zone, every uh, walk of life, by and large, has its own guidelines, customs, um, regulations, and so forth. It's, I mean, imagine, you know, imagine uh, if you're in New York City and there were no stop signs, there were no traffic laws, it would be utter chaos and anarchy. And, um, and so I think by uh, sort of following with this, you know, promotion of, of, of uh, inclusiveness and, and backcountry ethics and avalanche terrain, that we continue to have the freedoms that we've long enjoyed. In fact, the argument continues, Caleb, here, is that by promoting these ethics in the backcountry, not only are we more free from harm, but will ensure our access. Because in my view, some of the public safety managers, at some point, 
you know, if anarchy and lawless continues with avalanches being triggered by skiers and riders over the open roads, that at some point they will have no recourse but to close down that terrain altogether. And that's something that I'd like to push off uh, to where it never happens down the road. But we have to follow these guidelines. We have to promote this ethic to ensure these privileges for years to come. So, so what are some of these specifics about, just so our listeners can hear some of the specifics about the, the ethics and responsibilities of, of users in the backcountry when they're traveling over um, not only roads or infrastructure, but maybe in a, an area where there's lots of other parties? Can you just speak a little bit about, in your mind, what some of these codes and ethics would look like? Yeah, you know, Caleb, in a nutshell, uh, I described them as just a, a, a three-part uh, ethic here. It's, it boils down to knowledge, awareness, and wisdom. The knowledge simply is, is, is the knowledge of the type of avalanche conditions that exist and what type of avalanches you may trigger if you're out in the backcountry. The second one, the awareness, is being aware of the other entities that are in adjacent terrain that your party might be in and be aware of the control work or the efforts that the public safety uh, entities may be doing. So, you know, for example, uh, the, the, being aware of what the targets are for the Department of Transportation, if they're going to be shooting in this terrain or that terrain, to be aware of that and to avoid that terrain altogether. Um, to be aware of other parties above you and below you. And the last is the wisdom. I mean, that, the wisdom here is sort of the application of knowledge and awareness. And, you know, these ideas of, of, um, of you know, hiding under the bed, these ideas of, of uh, you know, the old, like, just say no, these things have never worked because, of course, we're going to go in the mountains. Of course, we're going to ski cut and ride the big lines and drop cornices. But the, the wisdom here is knowing when to do it at the right time, at the right place, and for the right reasons. Right. I, th I think that's a great point. The right time at the right, in the right place, you know, it's, it's not appropriate to be skiing the South face of Superior in the springtime in the afternoon when there's rapid warming going on. And, but it still, it still is done. Um, and, and so I think, I think that's a really good point. Um, you know, another, just to kind of play devil's advocate, um, you know, in our country, we need a license to drive. We need a license to go hunting, both of which are potentially dangerous activities that could bring harm to other users around you. You could get in a car accident. There could be a hunting accident. Um, so, you know, I, I can like it to skiing an avalanche train as well with other users around you. So, I mean, obviously... I think you've you've hit on some really good points about we all enjoy the freedom of the hills and we go to the mountains to be free, but um, I, I think there's an argument for people needing to take at least some sort of avalanche awareness course to be able to go recreate and do these things. How is it any different than driving or hunting, in your opinion? 
I, th I think it's very much uh, along the same lines, Caleb. Uh, now, but I would draw a distinction here. Um, even though, I, as, as, I'm, as I have remarked, I, I've been involved in public safety, you know, on the forecasting and then also on the rescue end. So I, I've seen it on both sides, but, but in my view, I, I draw the distinction on people going into the backcountry and making choices and making decisions. And if they end up in an accident, it's unfortunate that I draw the line here, Caleb, where people getting into the mountains, the, the line must be drawn at do no harm. So it gets into these ideas of philosophy of acceptable risk. And we have the right, as, Edward, as our hero Ed Abbey remarked years ago, you know, in our public lands, we should have the right to go out and, uh, uh, you know, go up into the mountains and get struck by lightning, get benighted overnight, uh, buried alive by avalanches, um, eaten by bears. I mean, that's our American God-given right. And I, and I appreciate that sentiment of testing our metal and getting out into the backcountry in the mountains to do as we wish, but to draw the line here when you bring other people into the equation um, and the buck stops at this idea of, of do no harm. Um, so that's quite different in my view. Yeah, I, I, I like that idea as well. Um, and I guess maybe, you know, instead of some sort of license, there's education is key, right? And you guys do a great job in the Wasatch with the Utah Avalanche Center um, of getting the word out and, you know, maybe you could talk about some of the ways that you guys are trying to reach those user groups who maybe are a little bit less informed. Um, what avenues of social media and, and other types of media are you guys using to try and get the word out, especially during those critical times when things are uh, sensitive in the backcountry? Mm. Yeah, Caleb, it's, it's, that's a really interesting question in terms of messaging. Um, because you can have the greatest message in the world, but if no one hears it, then it's just next to worthless. And in my view, it has to be uh, these messages of, of public safety and avalanche awareness, these, these, uh, messages, it needs to be a full court press. Um, you can't expect the users to come to you necessarily. It has to be a two-way street where you use and employ every bit of, of uh, media and social media and word of mouth and athletes and ambassadors and images and video and public service announcements and Twitter and in Instagram live feeds. It's, it's this, this method of, of press of like using and exhausting everything possible. Now, in terms of, you know, developing like this intrinsic ethic, um, that too requires a full court press, but it's, I think it's fundamental where the community itself drives this ethic through, again, the, the, uh, the, the athletes, the ambassadors, the the old guard, even the young up and coming 
you know, Instagram and Facebook stars that, that you see all over the web. You know, these are the thought leaders, the influencers that need to help spread the message of, of awareness and, and responsibility in the backcountry. And we've been successful with that. Yeah, it certainly seems seems like you guys have had a pretty far reach in your users. Um, and, you know, it's it's a really hard, hard pill to swallow to have have the looming um, the looming thought of closing, having to close the backcountry. Um, and this season, correct me if I'm wrong, but Utah Department of Transportation is kind of extended their closures for when they're uh, both in time and space for when they're going to be shooting a uh, little Cottonwood Road uh, highway. And how, how are the, how is the public reacting to that? Has there been any pushback and, and maybe explain that closure a little bit more for us? Just some some background on that, Caleb. You know, certainly the Department of Transportation here in Utah is is responsible for for public safety, uh, for the the state roads uh, that are threatened by avalanches from above. I mean, most heightened in Little Cottonwood Canyon, and then on to Provo Canyon, uh, Big Cottonwood Canyon, and there's even been closures in. Uh, the road going up to Powder Mountain, North Ogden Divide, and then Logan Canyon has also been closed at various times. I, I, I honestly, I don't remember a recent uh, winter where we've had so many roads that have been closed due to avalanches or the p potential for avalanches. But these teams are there with uh, the the primary mission of preventing natural avalanches from crossing the open road where there's commuter traffic. And so in that way, uh, since the 40s and 50s, they've employed avalanche teams to go up with explosives and in some cases artillery to trigger the avalanches artificially so that when the avalanches come down, they've already closed the roads to public transportation. So the avalanches can run when, when they've been triggered by artillery or explosives. They can do the cleanup work, and then they they can open the, the canyons back up for public transportation. Now, um, the complexity here is that as more and more people have been getting into the backcountry, they have been skiing and riding in many of these same targets, these, many of these same areas that are targeted for artillery and explosive work. And so if the artillery teams are seeing headlamps, in the starting zones, then of course, I mean, this is, they, it would be impossible. They would be prevented from shooting the targets. The artillery, this is wartime artillery, Caleb. Mm -hmm. I mean, so the, the potential for death and dismemberment is almost certain, you know, if they're gonna be shooting at the targets and people happen to be in those targets. And so they need to employ everything they can to, keep people out of those targets when they're going to do a shoot. Now, if they can't do a shoot, then that imperils the, the, the uh, people traveling the roads below them because they're not able to do the control work um, to create a safe environment for the, for the commuter. So you have two options. You keep the road open 
even though you're concerned about the danger, where an avalanche may come down and knock cars or buses off the road, and you can't have that, or you just keep the road closed. And so you're in this, you're in this bind as a public safety official uh, with what to do. And so in this case, what the Department of Transportation has done is employ every means of communication available, Instagram and Twitter and websites and so forth, to convey to the public that they're going to be doing a shoot, to convey where they're going to be doing a shoot, and to close the backcountry terrain uh, for a few hours ahead of time to ensure, to help ensure that no one will be in the targeted terrain when they need to get the job done. And that's, that's quite well received by the, by the backcountry users, you feel like? People understand it and, and are respecting that? Hats off to the public safety officials with the Department of Transportation. They originally employed a sweeping edict that, for example, again, we'll use Little Cottonwood Canyon, Caleb, that if they're going to do a shoot uh, in the morning, that they will close all backcountry terrain for the entirety of Little Cottonwood Canyon the night before. Mm -hmm. So they'll close it at, at 10 p.m. and the backcountry will be closed until they finish their shoot, which is uh, on the order of eight in the morning. Mm -hmm. um, again, to ensure that nobody's gonna be in those, in those targeted areas. Well, the backcountry community that's, this galvanized the backcountry community, and um, through a few different nonprofits and organizations, uh, the Wasatch Backcountry Alliance got involved, and they worked with uh, the Department of Transportation to point out that um, a full-scale closure um, may have may be too much, and so if the idea that all the control work would be done on the north side of the canyon, why does the south side of the canyon need to be closed as well? And so to me, even though this is more work and more communication uh, and more steps uh, for the DOT to take, that again, hats off to them for working with the backcountry community uh, to find a solution that's acceptable for everyone. Yeah, sounds like they've done a a great job working with all those users. Um, it, it's it's certainly, I, I like, again, I'm just gonna come back to that idea of shared responsibility among the public safety workers and the backcountry recreational users. Um, it's, it's imperative if we wanna keep these areas open and not regulated that we shift that culture a little bit to one more of shared responsibility. I think that's a really key point. Um, are there any any other topics you want to discuss here today, Drew, about um, you know increasing pressures in the backcountry and other other issues? Well, a couple, just a couple things to highlight the the sensitivity of the topic and. Um, you know, this winter alone, uh, up in the Tetons, there up on Teton Pass, uh, Highway 22 that goes up and over from Jackson over into Idaho and the Victor Driggs area, there have been at least 
two human triggered avalanches over the open road uh, there on the pass um, when the road was open. And so even though the Department of Transportation had done their control work, that doesn't mean that it's still completely safe. They've, they've prevented the naturals from occurring, but skiers were still able to trigger avalanches over the open road. One case uh, in, in uh, December, Mm -hmm. uh, where it actually hit a Jeep and knocked the Jeep off the road. Uh, Red Mountain Pass, um, pivoting back to Colorado, where even though the Department of Transportation had done their jobs to prevent naturals from occurring, that skiers were able to trigger an avalanche, and they and the skier and the avalanche went over the open road. And once again, it's just it's not but for the grace of God you know, that the school bus full of kids wasn't traveling underneath it. And so the writing is on the wall, Caleb. Um, these are not just ideas of, of, of things that may happen, but we have only to look north of the border at Rogers Pass, where they have um, a very strict uh, situation up there where backcountry skiers need to register and get a permit and even take an exam before they enter into the backcountry um, for the day. So you have to have a permit, you have to pass an exam, you have to abide by the regulations. And it, I mean, that's the writing on the wall, Caleb. If, if we can't um, take care of our own communities here uh, in the west, south of the border. I think both those scenarios this winter on Red Mountain Pass and Teton Pass, you know, is really the best case scenario. Um, and it's important to remember, I, I forget the name of the attorney that was on your panel at ISSW, but he brought up an idea of, you know, these people on the highways, they didn't buy a ticket to the show. That really <laughs> stuck with me, you know, like these are not users in the backcountry going to recreate. They're just trying to get to work or get home. Um, or like you said, a, a school bus full of kids. So uh, it's absolutely unacceptable to endanger those people by making, you know, uninformed or careless decisions when skiing over a road. Yeah, the you know I have to hand it to Brian Lazar. He he's uh, he's the deputy um, uh, chief forecaster over in the Carl Avalanche Information Center. Mm -hmm. He works with Ethan, and he had a great line for it. He, the, the question to ask is, are you putting others at risk without their consent? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. The, that's pretty much the key. Well, Drew, in, uh, I guess in closing here, you know, it's been great to talk to you about some of these. These are tough questions that are facing our community and tough issues, and um, it's, a, it's a relatively easy thing to combat if we take on that shared responsibility. Um, so I, I appreciate you bringing to light some of these key issues and, and your thoughts on them. Um, but in closing, if, if there's two pieces of advice that you have for our listeners to help keep them safe, but still having fun in backcountry avalanche train, what would those two key pieces of advice be? You know, the first one, First piece of advice I would crib from Roger Atkins. Uh, he's a longtime helicopter ski guide in in Canada, and he had a piece uh, called 
the strategic mindset where you need to adjust your mindset based upon the conditions. And he had a term within the essay that I really enjoyed. I really liked. Roger had this term, the selection of desires. And he made the comment there, he made the point that if only the steep and deep is the only desire that you have, then it's likely that you're going to get the ax. Because the conditions are not going to be favorable for you to meet your desires on every single day of every winter in the backcountry. And so by adjusting our selection of desires, by recognizing that we can experience joy and stoke through many different ways, whether you're on low-angled powder terrain in the in the forest at the middle elevations or the uh, you know the spring conditions when things are just right, it's the timing of things. By adjusting your selection of desires, or even you can get fulfillment by just being in the mountains uh, in low-angle terrain with uh, your friends or family. Um, that's a key to, to longevity. And uh, I recommend people look, look this paper up. It's quite good. It's, it talks about the strategic mindset, Roger Atkins. The second one, second piece of advice, Caleb, is, is to encourage people to continue, the, continue their education. Um, you know, the American Avalanche Association has put a great deal of time and effort in working with different uh, 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 providers and educators to develop a pro and rec split in the, in the curriculum of avalanche education. But, but over and above that is to encourage people to, to uh, continue their education to their level two and their level three um, uh, avalanche courses, because there's, there's so much wealth of knowledge and experience with the other people in the room. And in some cases, you are learning as much from the other people as you are from the instructors. And you can make these lifelong bonds and uh, with the other people, the other participants, and maybe find ski partners or, or climbing partners for, for, uh, for the future. Um, so continue your education. And, and the last bit is, is that, you know, certainly as we see people getting into the backcountry, their skill set for skiing and riding, um, they, people these days with their fitness and the gear, they, they become so skilled with their activity very quickly. And their avalanche skills don't match, aren't on the same curve as their uh, as their physical skills, and so we see that lagging behind. So I've already talked about getting your avalanche education, but add in a fundamental understanding of decision making, and what things might impede clear-eyed decision making when people when you're heading into the backcountry. And there's been a a, a new uh, wave of thinking in terms of psychology and, and decision-making as things, as things develop uh, over the years in, in recent times about decision-making and, and what are some good tools and tips and tricks for making sound decisions in the backcountry. Um, so I'd encourage people to look into that a bit more as well, Caleb. It's as much of an art as it is a science, I would say. Yeah, you need them both. You need them both. They complement each other well. Well, Drew, thanks again for coming on the show, and and I, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and and you have a great way with words. So, um, 
thank you for for being here and and thanks for sharing your thoughts and opinions and and ideas caleb thanks so much uh keep up the good work and and have a great rest of your winter yeah you do the same hope to see you soon okay man all right cheers is Alex Marienthal of the Gallatin National Forest Avalanche Center with a synopsis of the snowpack history in southwest Montana from early October to March 2nd. In southwest Montana, the first snow stuck around in early October. Uh, the northern Gallatin Range south of Bozeman and the mountains near Cook City had two to three feet of snow and there was no more than a foot of snow elsewhere. This early snow turned into a melt freeze crust and cold temperatures allowed it to persist on shady high elevation, mostly north to east facing slopes. Through mid-November, the Bridger Range north of Bozeman and the mountains near West Yellowstone had warmer temperatures and received more rain than snow. In these mountains, snow stuck to only the highest, shadiest aspects prior to Thanksgiving week. In late November, one to two feet of snow formed the foundation of the snowpack on the slopes that did not previously have snow. And cold temperatures quickly turned this snow into weak facets and depth hoar. These weak layers formed above the early October melt freeze crust where it existed and formed on the ground elsewhere. More snow and a lot of wind in early December created very unstable conditions. A foot of snow totaling one inch of snow water equivalent put the first significant load on the early season weak layers we issued the first avalanche warning for the mountains near Bozeman on December 2nd, and the southern mountains got their first avalanche warning on December 5th. Uh, ski patrols at Bridger Bowl, Big Sky, and the Yellowstone Club triggered deep, wide slides that ran long distances to flat terrain, and avalanches broke three to four feet deep and were more widespread on the slopes with the basal October crust, but not ruled out on other slopes. Between storms in December, Cold below zero Fahrenheit temperatures formed weak facets on the surface of the recent snow. Snowfall resumed on December 10th and a snowmobiler in the northern Madison range near Big Sky was fully buried. He was recovered uninjured within 10 minutes. On December 11th, a skier was tragically killed in an avalanche near Cook City. He was the seventh track down a small slope. The avalanche was on a northeast aspect and broke three feet deep and 150 feet wide on facets above the October crust. Our deepest condolences go to his family, friends, and community. The following week, three to four and a half inches of snow water equivalent in the southern mountains led to an avalanche warning on December 16th and 17th. During this warning, large natural avalanches broke on facets near the ground and were triggered by snowmobilers days after the warning expired. Snowfall tapered off through the end of December but intermittent accumulations kept things fresh. Uh, snow and wind through New Year's caused avalanches to break naturally on facets above the crust on the ground. 2017 began with frigid temperatures and only a dusting of snow. Weak layers got weaker in the shallow early season snowpack, and in Cook City, a mid-January storm with four inches of snow water equivalent accompanied a three-day avalanche warning. Large natural avalanches ran full track and broke on facets that formed in mid-December, Otherwise, January was most notable for weak layers that formed at the surface of the snowpack, which required us to get out our shovels to inspect their behavior through storms in February. 
An uneventful end to January was eclipsed by increased snowfall and a quick return to winter. Near Cook City, an historic storm dropped 10.9 inches of snow water equivalent between January 30th and February 11th. This was the third largest 14-day storm total on record at the nearest Snowtell site. This storm culminated with the first extreme avalanche danger ever issued by the Gallatin National Forest Avalanche Center. When storm totals exceeded historic amounts after a week, and there was relatively minimal avalanche activity, we realized the snowpack always has a breaking point, and it was still to come. The longer a snowpack holds up to heavy loading, the larger the avalanches are when it finally breaks. Massive wind slabs awoke December and October facets, and widespread avalanches ran full path, clearing out large trees. Avalanche activity tapered off relatively quickly after this historic storm, and provided confidence that persistent instabilities were not widespread. Uh, many paths went multiple times during the storm, and we feel any pre-existing weak layers would have broke during or shortly after this event. Snow during the storm was relatively heavy and dense and bonded well through the storm, and instabilities recently have been mostly confined to new snow and wind slabs, which are plentiful with recent steady snowfall through the last week of February. We will be keeping a watchful eye as new weak interfaces show up around crusts that formed prior to recent snowfall. In the southern Madison Range and mountains near West Yellowstone, a couple weak layers of facets and surface hoar formed in, mid, in between storms in mid-January and early February. Uh, in mid-February, a snowmobiler triggered a slide that partially buried another rider. This slide broke on facets near the ground. Currently, a thin layer of facets above a rain crust is buried two to three feet deep, which is our main concern. Uh, storms at the end of February produced instability on this layer including one avalanche that was triggered by a tree that, that, that fell on the slope during a very strong wind event. In the northern Gallatin Range, south of Bozeman, and the northern Madison Range near Big Sky, they've had the least snow since the new year. Warm temperatures and strong wind and light snowfall contributed to a generally stable snowpack in these areas. Uh, however, near Big Sky, weak layers of facets from December and January are well preserved, but avalanche activity has been minimal without a with a lack of large loading events. Avalanches could still be triggered on facets buried one and a half to two feet deep, uh, and a good storm would make large slides likely. The Bridger Range just received a February farewell of cold smoke powder that was honestly reported by the skier majority as the deepest snow they've ever skied. Six feet of snow over two days averaged 3% water and 97% air. Skiers were fully engulfed in clouds of powder all weekend. We issued an avalanche warning the second day of the storm. Avalanche activity was confined to the new snow. A couple large wind slabs were triggered and ran naturally, but instabilities diminished quickly. And widespread weak layers did not appear to be a concern in the Bridger Range for now. Overall, since January 1st, Cook City received the most snow with 19.1 inches of snow water equivalent. Southern Madison Range and mountains near West Yellowstone have the second most with 14 inches. The Bridger Range north of Bozeman got 9.5 inches of SWE. The mountains near Big Sky got 7.2 inches, and the northern Gallatin Range got 6 inches of snow water equivalent since January 1st. Now, there seems to be a different snowpack in each mountain range, but in general, the mountains near Bozeman and Cook City are mainly dealing with new snow and wind instabilities for now. The mountains from Big Sky to West Yellowstone have instabilities associated with new snow and wind as well, but also have layers of facets buried a foot and a half to three feet deep that remain a concern. 
what has been an average winter for us uh, may be overshadowed by unprecedented weather through the west, but we've kept busy with snow and weak layers in one area or another. And in addition to following the snowpack of seven mountain ranges, we partner with the Friends of the GNFAC to provide avalanche education. We've provided 116 classes to almost 5,000 students this season. And this includes a new weekly program of current avalanche conditions talks and rescue training every Friday evening and Saturday in Cook City. Snowfall will continue with spring on the horizon. Change is imminent and I won't be surprised if we write about a new week layer tomorrow or unusual avalanche activity next week. So stay tuned, have fun and stay safe. For more information about the GNFAC or for the most recent advisory, visit our website at mtavalanche.com or you can find us and other regional avalanche centers at avalanche.org. Thanks for listening. As always, I welcome your feedback. Please email us your thoughts to the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com or get in touch with us on our Facebook page. Thanks to all the generous supporters of our Indiegogo campaign. We couldn't have gotten this going without you. Thank you to the contributors of this episode. Music today by Ryan Little, courtesy of freemusicarchive.com and the sweet riffs of Adam Cook. Our artwork was created by Mike T. Until next time, keep having fun and stay safe out there.